From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uguez, and this is The Explainer. These victims uh, really deserve to be heard. They deserve to be compensated. And, and there should be consequences for this kind of outrageous behavior. Convicted pedophile and registered sex offender billionaire Jeffrey Epstein escaped a possible lifetime sentence in federal prison after cutting a sweetheart deal in 2007 with then-U.S. Attorney, now Secretary of Labor, Alex Acosta. The agreement and the powerful people involved were brought to full exposure by a series in November by the Miami Herald's Julie Brown. Celeste Higgins, Associate Director of Miami Law's Litigation Skills Program, spent more than 25 years as a federal public defender for the Southern District of Florida, trying more than 100 criminal cases. Let's go to Celeste with Explainer Executive Producer, Katherine Skip. Good morning, Celeste. Thanks for joining us here at the Explainer Studios. Thank you for inviting me. So we're going to talk about Jeffrey Epstein. So some of, some of this was known about this case when the 2007 deal happened. But then the Herald spent a year reviewing all the documents, interviewing people that were involved, and reading thousands of emails. Can you please summarize the case for our listeners? Sure. Um, basically, the uh, Jeffrey Epstein was charged in state court with two counts. One was regular prostitution, and one was prostitution with a minor. Um, what he avoided was what was then subsequently revealed in the in the article that was written in the Herald, uh, which was that he had engaged, appears that he had engaged in a long-term exploitation of many minors, women, excuse me, little girls, basically, ages 14 and up, who would go to his home under the guise, under the idea that they were going to give him a massage um, and then ended up providing the massage as well as sexual favors. And sometimes only on one occasion, but another, uh, other, with other girls, apparently uh, it's revealed that they were repeat, uh, I guess, uh, repeatedly went to his house and engaged in different levels of sexual conduct. And then uh, he re received a deal from the federal government that allowed him to uh, not serve very much time. Um, what surprised you about the deal? There were many things um, that were surprising, if not shocking, about this deal. First of all, the, the deal was entered into between himself and West Palm Beach County. What it avoided was any prosecution by the federal government, which clearly had the ability, they had jurisdiction, so they had the ability to charge him, but part of the deal that he reached with the West Palm Beach uh, attorney's, off, uh, attorney's Office was that the federal government would not prosecute him. That is, that is very rare. Um, you know, there's, there are times, the, the double jeopardy clause of the Constitution indicates that you cannot be charged twice for the same crime, right? Uh, but that really only means you can't be charged twice by the same entity. So West Palm Beach could not charge him twice, but West Palm Beach and the federal government could have charged them, each of them, with whatever laws they felt he had violated. Um, normally, when one 
entity like the federal government gives up their right to prosecute, it has to be in exchange for something pretty significant. Um, you don't see it so often where the federal government gives up the right to prosecute someone. Normally, it's the other way around. There are some reasons for that. Number one, it is perceived that the sentences that people get for a crime in federal court are going to be higher. Generally speaking, that's true. Um, in very rare occasions are the state sentences higher than the federal sentences. So if, if a victim uh, is interested in making sure they get justice, normally the idea is that whoever, whichever jurisdiction is able to sentence higher is the one that's going to pursue the prosecution. Without a doubt, in this case, the sentence that he would have been exposed to in federal court was significantly higher than what would have been available to the West Palm Beach County Attorney's Office. And remind office. us what kind of time he served versus what kind of time he could have served. He received a sentence of, I believe, 13 months in state custody. Well, actually, I guess it was county custody. That sentence is not served to its completion. It's usually reduced by gain time and good, good behavior and things like that. Um, in addition, he served it in a private wing of the Palm Beach County Detention Center, supervised and guarded by private guards that he himself had hired. It's like Pablo Escobar. Exactly. Uh, which is, I, I actually have never heard of that before. In federal court, had he been charged uh, with some of the statutes that would have applied ha uh, if he had been charged in federal court, he would have been looking at sentences. Could have, he was looking at a 10-year minimum mandatory sentence, meaning nobody would have been able to reduce it for the transportation of minors for prostitution. There, some of the evidence um, that was revealed through the Herald article uh, includes that he transported some of these young girls in and out of the state, in and out of the country. And that is a crime that has a mandatory minimum of 10 years. And, and in addition to that, unlike some other crimes where you, you even if you serve, even if you've been charged with many different crimes, uh, violations of statute, you serve the sentence all at the same time, transportation of minors uh, under, the, under the federal statutes cannot be grouped with other crimes. So for each girl, he would have had a sentence that could not have been run concurrently. He would have had to have run consecutively. He was looking at an enormous amount of time, basically. Just an enormous amount of time, up to life imprisonment. So this, this deal that he received allowed him to serve this 13-month sentence, which ended up being something like nine months, in a private wing of a jail supervised by his own people. And not only that, with the ability to leave the jail, to go to his office, to do some work, which is also, that is referred to as intermittent com, uh, community confinement. And, and it just doesn't, just doesn't really happen. It's, it's very difficult to mm -hmm. ever see that. Um, so that, that was one of the things is that, is that the federal government gave up their opportunity to prosecute him. And, and that is not normally what happens. It's usually the state that gives up that opportunity. The other thing is that um, the, the, if there was an agreement that was that beneficial to him, 
Normally, it comes as a result of the defendant, in this case Epstein, giving something back to the United States government. Um, obviously not money, but what it would include would be information. It, it would have had included, I, I am going to give you the names of some of the other people that were engaged in this similar conduct that I was doing in exchange for you being more lenient with me in my sentence. And as far as I can tell from the article and from what I reviewed the docket sheets, I can't see that anybody has been implicated in the conduct that he engaged in as a result of his, what they call cooperation, which is his ability to provide information. I, we kept waiting for that. All of us who were watching this from the very beginning thought, oh, well, Epstein is going to now, he's now going to name some names and he's going to be willing to testify against them. So that is why he got this incredibly sweet deal from the United States government and nothing ever came out of it. Could he have given secret information on something else, for instance? Like, could he have given them a tip that would have brought down someone like Bernie Madoff? Or would that have to have become part of the public record? Like, you'd have to, there would have to be somewhere that told you what, why they gave him the steal. It would not have to be public necessarily. Um, but it would become obvious for those people who regularly practice in this world, we would have been able to see, hmm, I wonder how this person got indicted. And then if there was a connection, you would have been able to connect the dots. Mm -hmm. It does not appear that there was anything like that in play here. And there were other irregularities to the deal. There was, first of all, the manner in which the deal was made. Usually in, in criminal cases, um, you, uh, as a defense attorney, I would deal with the prosecutor that was in charge of that case. That person would be called the line assistant. And I, all my dealings are with that person. If I cannot negotiate a good deal for my client, I would then go the, over that person's head and go to their supervisor. Mm -hmm. And if that didn't work, then I'd go over that person's head to the division chief. And if that didn't work, I might get to the assistant US, US attorney. And very rarely, uh, would there be any way or reason for the U.S. attorney to be involved in the negotiations of a deal? Okay, let's just assume that this one's a little slightly bigger. Maybe, maybe there was some discussion that he was gonna he was gonna name names, but if that is very unlikely. And the other thing that was very extraordinarily weird is that the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Florida negotiated this deal with these criminal defense attorneys in a hotel lobby, which is what the Herald article revealed. When, when you negotiate with the U.S. Attorney's Office, you go to the U.S. Attorney's Office, you sit in their lobby or in their office. Sometimes you might negotiate deals in the courtroom after a proceeding has occurred, but a, but, but a, but a discussion and negotiation in the lobby sounds and looks, I mean, the optics are bad. It sounds and looks like there was a reason to try to hide it, to to be less than transparent. Mm. Um, well, it seems like uh, the victims in this case have been woefully neglected. Is there any uh, remedy for them to kind of undo what has been done? 
so yeah, I, I don't I don't know the answer. The answer to that is I don't really know. The the Crime Victims Rights Act under um, the statute, the federal statute thirty seven seventy one, is very specific about the rights a victim has when a deal is being reached between the federal government and a defendant in a case. And among the things that the victim has uh, available to them is that they get to go to hearings. They are specifically um, not excluded from proceedings. Meaning any Any parts. hearing, any, any parts of uh, public, uh, public events where there's a judge and, and the two sides. They, they get a right uh, to say, to have a say about the plea agreement that is being reached and any potential sentence. They have a right to, to speak with the assistant United States attorney, the line assistant, about their views of what's being offered. They, they, they have a right to restitution. Actually, it's mandatory under federal law that if there is a victim, that the victim is entitled to have restitution, which is to... to to be paid for whatever the damage is on the part from the defendant. They have a right to be treated fairly. And most importantly to this particular situation is that they have the right to be informed in a timely manner of any plea bargain or deferred prosecution agreement. So this last section of, of the Crime Victims' Right Act is very important to what happened here because apparently the victims were neither informed of the plea bargain nor were they informed that there was going to be no prosecution in federal court, which are two things that they are absolutely entitled to. So now, but this thing, this all occurred a long time ago and now they've been informed, but the rule also says it has to be in a timely manner. So I think that one of the things that has happened thus far is that the, some of the attorneys for uh, the victims have started to challenge the the actual agreement, the non-prosecution agreement. Uh, uh, just going back for for one second, did it have to do? Were the state court was Palm Beach held under that same act, or is that only apply in federal court? Like by taking this, you know, having the so-called prosecution happen by Palm Beach, did that then allow them not to? you know, check off all the things that they should have done under the Victims' Right Act? Well, Palm Beach County does not fall under the um, Crime Victims' Right Act because that's a federal statute mm -hmm. that applies to federal prosecutions. Um, they may have had a, uh, an obligation to inform these victims on their own, but not under the the, the, the Crime um Victims' Right Act. That just rolls off your tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> it's, yeah. It, it seems like it's right. backwards. <laughs> um, okay, so they, they, Palm Beach may have had their own obligation, but they ended up prosecuting him. The, the problem here is that the federal government definitely had this obligation and decided not to prosecute right. him. Okay. And if we, uh, if the article in the Herald reveals that they actually authored a 53-page indictment, which they obviously didn't present to a grand jury. So someone took the time to draft this indictment, which requires that it include sufficient information uh, about what the crime was, sufficient notice of when the events occurred, 
-hmm. It has to provide the defendant with a notice of what are the applicable statutes that are in place, the right. applicable law, what the mandatory minimums are, what the mandatory maximum or what the possible maximum term of imprisonment is, how long they anticipate the case is going to take to try. Um, all of those things would have been researched and put together in this 53-page indictment. They chose not to present it. And it never saw the light of day. And it never saw the light of day. Okay. So I, I, whether I, Palm Beach prosecuted, and so I, I guess to some degree they, they, they completed their prosecution of what they thought they could prosecute him for in state court, but the, the federal government chose not to, and that was where they violated that, that particular law. And so some of the victims have now challenged this non-prosecution agreement because they are claiming that it's in violation of the Crime Victims Right Act, mm -hmm. which would have allowed them to be a participant in what was offered to him. That's one thing. Um, I mean, they're suing civilly. Uh, and some of this resurfaced as a result of the first case that was brought to court for uh, civil remedies because they didn't end up going to trial, mm -hmm. which means that the victims were not required to testify. And that's good. They didn't have to be re-victimized. But there was an agreement to keep the details of the settlement quiet, uh, meaning you know confidential. And that's, we don't know what the settlement was. Um, and that's the first one. Uh, there are still several other ones. And they may choose to go to trial and not settle or they may um, choose to settle as well. So the, the remedies right now, the clear remedy that the victims have are money damages that they can try to obtain from a civil suit. Um, whether or not they're going to be able to eventually force anybody's hand to make sure that uh, Epstein serves more time than what he did, that's a little bit unclear. Mm -hmm. So there, there's a a way around clawing it back civilly, but as far as changing the the criminal complaint, that's ship has sailed. Whatever time he did, whatever deal he caught. Well, the first step would be that that a judge would have to make a determination that the agreement between the federal government and Epstein was unlawful as a result of the violation of the Crime Victims' Right Act. And what judge would, what, what court would hear that case and who would bring the case? That would be brought by the victims. It would have to be in federal court because that agreement was reached between the federal government and Epstein, and the judge would have to make that ruling. Now, I don't know that right now there is a judge assigned to this matter. Mm -hmm. I don't know where in the proceedings they are. Um, and I don't know if they're maybe uh, engaged in some other way of bringing that challenge. Um, but I, I think from my observation, I think they should, if they haven't already. I think there might be, um, and, I, and I think there might be a reason for a federal court to want to to wanna review that because it just seems like it is so unlawful just on its face. Because of the because of the, uh, the the obvious violation of the Crime Victims' Right Act, you know, it, to the idea of whether or not there's anything available to them, I some of the federal statutes that would be um, in play that that he could have been charged with 
um, are very clearly don't have a statute of limitations. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been some changes with regard to that because even in state court, because sometimes it takes a long time for victims um, to really step forward uh, and feel uh, sufficiently comfortable to discuss what has happened to them. So there's been some effort to to lift the, the strict statute of limitations. I know that in state court, they uh, there is no statute of limitations for this kind of behavior. And in federal court, there is also an exception to, so we normally have a five-year statute of limitation in federal court, but for these kinds of offenses, uh, that's lifted. So there might still be a, a, ma- a manner in which to prosecute him, but the first hurdle would have to be that the agreement to not prosecute him uh, would have to be set aside by a court in order mm-hmm. to be found um, in violation of the law. And, and the other thing that we also, be, because as reprehensible as Epstein's conduct was, and, and whether or not you, a person would find how this deal was reached was uh, wrong or smells bad or looks bad, I, I have to say that the one group of people that did not violate any rules or didn't do anything wrong were his lawyers. Because in the end, they got him an incredible deal. They did their jobs. Um, they earned their money. They they earned their money. And, and considering the... The, the people that were involved, the lawyers that were involved, this was not a cheap, this was not a cheap defense. And, mm-hmm. and he got good representation. The, the problem is that, and it wasn't their job, meaning his lawyer's job, to make sure that victims were treated fairly. That, that fell to the prosecutors on both sides, the state and the federal, and maybe even the judge, um, but, but certainly not to the lawyers that were representing uh, Mr. Epstein, who apparently did a really good job. So he had the best uh, defense money could buy, which leads me to justice seems to look differently at rich and powerful people than it looks at poor people with not a lot of money to defend themselves. So I, how do you, what's it say about our system? And, and we can talk a little on the back end on how does how do we fix it? I, just to let you know, I, I teach extensively in Central and South America um, on the oral adversarial system, the idea that our system is much more transparent than an inquisitorial system. I think there's been some changes in Central and South America to model their criminal justice systems to be more like ours. Um, And I, I will tell anybody, I will stand on any soapbox and explain that I still firmly believe that what our system is is as good as it can be. And it's certainly not perfect. The explainer as soapbox. I like this. Um, it's not perfect. Right. But, and, and because in part, because it, it deals, it, it's human, you know, and humans are not perfect. But it, I think it is as transparent as it, as it can be. When I go to other countries and people ask me, well, but you have a public defender system, but certainly someone who's represented by the public defender isn't going to be as well-serviced as somebody who has a lot of money. I always nix that idea, partly because I don't believe that's true, and also partly because I was a public defender, so <laughs> I can't I can't agree with it. But I don't believe that it's true. Uh, in my experience, um, I believe that most prosecution offices treat everything pretty much the same. There are things that are apl- that are applicable, and you can't get around them. Things like mandatory minimum sentences, and I and I have always believed that. This is one of the reasons why I was so shocked about this case. 
is because it clearly looks like the benefit and the advantage that Epstein had was that he had very powerful criminal defense attorneys who were able to somehow persuade the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Florida to not prosecute. And But do you think it's also a, a very rich and politically connected defendant? I mean, it kind of leads you to believe that he he had some skeletons, he had some markers that he was able to play. I think the reason this story has received some of the attention that it has received is because the then sitting U.S. attorney was Alex Acosta, who was at the time being considered to be attorney general. And Alex Acosta at that time was quite young uh, U.S. attorney and clearly was very interested in becoming uh, involved in politics on a national level. And so the optics are that somehow this benefit to Epstein was going to be reimbursed with some favorable treatment or consideration on a political level. You know, you fast forward after he became after he was the US attorney, he he was the dean of the law school at FIU and shortly thereafter he became a cabinet member for this current administration. And then was in the running for attorney general, an incredibly powerful position. Um, and so the optics are that something was negotiated, that there was some favorable treatment in exchange for, in the future, Alex getting something for this. But I don't know that, and I'm certainly not, I'm not on the record saying that it, you know, I'm, this is what happened, but I think that's why a lot of people are a little shocked about this, because... Yeah, it smacks of a little smoky background absolutely. or... Hotel lobby, a absolutely, deal. Mm -hmm. absolutely, and I th and I think that's that was the problem that eventually surfaced when he was being considered for for attorney general, which he's now been removed from that shortlist. Um, I I think, but back to the question about whether or not there's disparate treatment based on whether you can afford private lawyers or whether you are a powerful person. Look, we have examples of people who were very powerful, very very famous, who were not able to avoid prosecution. Um, you know, going way back to O.J. Simpson, was not able to avoid prosecution on either occasion. Um, Martha Stewart was not able to avoid. Bertie Madoff, who had more money than God, I assume, uh, was not ultimately able to avoid prosecution. So it's not always that you, if you have enough money, you get to avoid it. But I do think there that there are... I, the article that in the Herald suggests or reports that one of the comments that Alex Acosta made was that he felt very pressured because all of these lawyers were such high, powerful lawyers, uh, nationally known, and that he was pressured into this deal. That is absolutely preposterous, and that I will go on the record for. I've never known, I don't even know a line attorney who would ever say, I was pressured because Roy Black was the defense attorney. That no, and, and in fact, I think more often than not, there's a there's a sense of I'm not going to let myself uh, I'm not going to let myself be persuaded because because it, it, just because it's Roy Black or Kenneth Starr or whoever it is, or that he just wants to be like liked by the billionaire boys club. I, I, yeah, I so the pressure I don't think that that would have been it. So mm -hmm. that 
begs the question, then, then why? Um, which we, of course, will not be able to answer. Um, I, I think that, I do think that if there is, if there's more attention to a defendant who is well known, there is a, a, a better or a, a likelihood that they might get better treatment because now they are on stage. Mm -hmm. In my practice at the Federal Public Defender's Office, over the course of 25 years, my clients were not well-known. My clients were not wealthy, obviously. My clients were, were disadvantaged people, generally mm -hmm. speaking. And there was no incentive for the U.S. Attorney's Office to be more favorable or less favorable to them that if somebody came along that was famous, uh, they might be have more attention on them. But to tell you the truth, I, I think that the more, the the more well known the defendant is, the harder it would be for a prosecution office to be generous and benevolent to them, because then it does look like they are getting favorable treatment, um, and so. And, and I think that for the most part, the the, the prosecutors um, that I've dealt with are are fine prosecutors, people who really want to serve, mm -hmm. people who really do have justice in mind. But um, but I, I guess you know there can be exceptions, I suppose. Right. So you've talked about what the ramifications could be uh, with with Epstein, other than nipping Acosta in his you know trajectory to the top, it, are there any legal consequences that he could be uh, charged with or, or or it's just a black mark, a smirch on his reputation that he got sucker punched into this deal? You know, never say never. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it is very unlikely that Alex Acosta will be able to overcome this this mark on his record. I think there's been a significant amount of attention to this, to the point where uh, I, I don't really think he can overcome it. But he's young. People have short memories. Who knows? The one, some of the more immediate problems he might have is that now that we have a Democratic, uh, we have the Democrats in control of the House, there is now some attention but it's not even being just from the Democrats. I, there are Republicans that are also calling for, for um, investigation. Senator Patty Murray uh, from Washington and Tim Kaine from Virginia, along with 14 other Democrats, have sent a letter um, to the Department of Justice calling for an investigation into what Alex Acosta's role was in reaching this deal. I, I think that there, there was a, a quote that said, we are deeply concerned by Mr. Epstein's horrific serial abuse of children, and new revelations about the process by which he was given, to quote the Herald, the deal of a lifetime. Um, Marco Rubio was recently asked, and he said that, um, that there might have been a possibility that there was political influence uh, by keeping Epstein out of prison, and he, but he thinks it would be very troubling. Um, so I don't know if even people in the Republican Party are not satisfied with the manner in which this uh, this particular series of abuses were handled by the prosecuting branches. Well, I would assume also, like, you know, when any, when any office, whether it's a DNA testing lab or, you know, a police pre precinct or whatever, when you find a bad apple, they start looking at 
all the other things that bad apple did. It calls into question their whole record. Does that seem like something that might happen, that they look at other deals that that Acosta did to see if they smell a little fishy too? The There might be an interest in doing that, but there would not be um, a legal manner in which to do anything about it unless there is a violation, such a obvious, such an obvious violation mm-hmm. of a statute like the one that we're dealing with here with, with the victims. Um, sometimes people get some really good deals in exchange for providing information to the prosecution mm-hmm. and then their information ends up being not so great. Right. And that's just the way the cards work, you know? Okay, you gave me something really good up front. I was supposed to give you something really good back. You you didn't think it was so great. Eh, all right. Well, we that's that's that was the hand that was that was uh, uh, given to them. Do you think we've seen the end of this? I don't think we've seen the end of this. I think, uh, thanks to the Herald article uh, that revealed what happened here, and 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 mostly in, in addition to the fact that we as a community should be outraged that there would be any kind of preferential treatment. These victims uh, really deserve to be heard. They deserve to be compensated. And and there should be consequences for this kind of outrageous behavior. Um, And, you know, we have all sorts of investigations going on right now in all levels of administrations, but I don't think we've seen the end of this. Um, I'm, I'll take a quote from a New York Times opinion piece by Michelle Gold, Goldberg, where uh, she said, it is the perverse good fortune of Alexander Acosta, Donald Trump's Secretary of Labor, to be part of an administration so spectacularly corrupt that it's simply impossible to give all its scandals the attention they deserve. Perfect note to end on. Thank you so much for joining us. It's very interesting. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thanks for joining us at The Explainer. On next week's show, we're with health rights expert Janelle Newman, who will take the pulse of the Affordable Care Act. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi. Our theme music is composed by Ray D. Kim from the Frost School of Music, and I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's show was brought to you by the LLM programs of Miami Law. The nine postgraduate offerings help U.S. and foreign-trained law students and lawyers raise their practices to new heights and deepen specialization. Join them for an open house at East Miami Hotel on February 12th.